Today's our last episode of 2022. We'll try to spare you the see you next year jokes as we take a look at predictions we made for this year back in January. What did we get right, wrong, hit, or miss entirely? We will also be joined by Jen Ryan from Herrera Health Group. Jen's a tour de force in Medicaid policy and programs nationwide and a champion for trauma-informed care. Melissa, are you ready to hold ourselves accountable to predictions we made back in January? Cringe, but yes. We also made New Year's resolutions. Double cringe. I actually don't think you need to cringe at that. According to our records, you resolved to adopt more grace and understanding for others and to send greeting cards. I can attest that you have reached the highest levels of grace and patience this year. You are constantly pulling back, taking a beat, and allowing for a variety of perspectives. You've been the embodiment of grace. How did it go sending greeting cards? Is this something I can blame on COVID? Is that is that still a thing? Or potentially supply chain issues? I think there may have been a paper shortage. <laughs> nice try. I sat patiently by my mailbox every day, just wishing and hoping for a greeting card. <laughs> Uh, this year for me was about community ed, if we, uh, if we remember, and I did salsa lessons I, with my partner. Um, one of the couples though, in our salsa class was a mother son duo and the son was like a professional dancer. So like, in addition to being highly intimidating, <laughs> um, I now have new goals for my five footer and I, uh, but I did not get uh, to register in time for the dog sledding, the intro to dog sledding. Um, and this is such a, a sign of the bold North here. Um, I was really genuinely looking forward to that and kind of disappointed that I missed it. I think this may be what they call stalling. Oh, fine. Perhaps let's dive in. But also before we do get to predictions um, and settling our 2022 bets, there is some news and happenings in Medicare land, uh, global and professional direct contracting results from performance year one or in Melissa, who's sighing, who's crying. On average, gross savings were around 3.3%. This is before the 2% discount was applied for DCEs in the global risk option. But people don't sigh and cry over averages. Of the 53 participants, 38 earned shared savings and 15 incurred losses. While all the DCEs received 100% on quality scores, that was because 80 points were awarded automatically, and on the remaining 20, the DCEs needed to perform above 30% nationally, not a super high bar. Starting in 2023, though, quality will be 100% based on performance. Also of note, while the average was 3.3%, savings and losses ranged from plus 30 to minus 30%. That is not typical at all for these models. Both of those participants were new entrants, which may indicate that CMS has not quite cracked the nut on estimating benchmarks for these new types of entities. Right. On average, these results are on par with the Medicare Shared Savings Program, but a 30% swing in savings and losses really is more cause for concern, I think, than celebration. It's at least a cause for curiosity. Um, so we should view these outliers with curiosity. Is the financial methodology holding up, particularly with respect to benchmarking? Is it holding up with respect to um, risk adjustment? Um, I don't think this causes us to think that somebody had a wildly bad or wildly good uh, care model. And so lots of lots of work. I think these results present challenges and opportunities for the agency. Um, 
But if it's any indication, you know, burying the results in the lead up to a holiday weekend is probably not a sign that the agency wanted to draw attention to them. So I believe that the debate over original Medicare versus original Medicare with advanced alternative payment models versus Medicare Advantage will continue. I thought the New York Times did a great job laying out the trade-offs between traditional Medicare and Medicare Advantage in a piece they published on November 20th. Comparing MA to one-stop shopping, drug plans included, vision, dental, no need to hobble together Part D, supplemental benefits, etc., as well as appearing cheaper with no premiums and capped out-of-pocket expenses. But the article reminded seniors to read the fine print. Dental could mean just one cleaning instead of full coverage. And with a narrow network, you may inadvertently end up seeing out-of-network providers. They also got into prior authorization and denied claims, which can be a bit weedy. One of the big downsides for Medicare Advantage and a key tool in the way these plans control utilization and costs, noting an Inspector General report that 13% of services denied by MA plans would have been covered by traditional Medicare. Basically, there are important trade-offs that are sometimes not accounted for with the MA advertising blitz. Traditional Medicare needs some innovation and maybe a bit of marketing, or at least a better job laying out the side-by-side comparison. You know, speaking of that, I saw that CMS released a side-by-side comparison of ACO programs versus Medicare Advantage. Um, And the comparison, it was short, it was sweet, it wasn't everything, but it's a start. And I was excited to see the agency attempting to clarify this distinction for seniors. Good job, CMS, for having my idea. And finally, to our predictions. In January, we discussed a broad range of topics from health equity to safety net providers, CMI models, to the eventual end of the public health emergency. Meg, let's see how we did. First up, this was Breda speaking on CMI models and health equity. I would guess that on the health equity side, we'll see more health equity quality measures added to CMI models. We already saw this when the Biden CMS added some equity measures to the ESRD treatment choices or ETC model earlier in 2021. And I guess that they'll make those measures or similar measures standard across all new models and maybe try to add some to existing models as well. We may also see a model that specifically targets health equity, but as you mentioned, Melissa, that probably would not be announced until 2023. Well, as usual, Breda was spot on. Score one for Breda. Global and professional direct contracting got an extreme CMMI makeover complete with new requirements, new eligibility criteria, and a new emphasis on serving underserved populations and reducing disparities. The newly branded ACO REACH model, or Realizing Equity, Access, and Community Health model, requires collecting data to support health equity aims and requires ACOs to make a health equity plan. The program also pays a little more if the population served by the ACO falls into an area of high deprivation to encourage expanding services and access in those communities. Since these announcements, we've also seen similar commitment to equity in the updates to the Medicare Shared Savings Program in the final physician fee schedule rule that was just released. Next up, this one's from you, Meg, speaking on workforce. We have this prediction. The workforce is is in the midst of a massive upending. 
um, where we were with workforce shortages prior to COVID in healthcare, plus the great resignation that's impacting every industry, plus changes in care delivery and care seeking that consumers have pursued uh, because of the pandemic, plus the exponential burnout um, from COVID, that all has the potential to seismically shift the ground so significantly under the healthcare labor markets that I think we're in for the kind of disruption we've never encountered before. How did I do? I think your notion that the healthcare workforce challenges are massive, here to stay, and only growing really hit the mark. At the end of November, in the state of Oregon, for instance, the governor issued an order allowing pediatric hospitals to staff with volunteer nurses and doctors. The shortages and strain on healthcare workforce is that severe. Next up, Melissa, you address predictions or a possible hope for the end of the public health emergency. I mean, for the for the bricks and mortar that still exist, I hope that some of the lessons learned, the emergency preparedness, pandemic readiness, to some degree becomes more ingrained. A lot of these health systems, public health institutions had to adapt really quickly. Large-scale vaccine distribution, COVID wards, planning around overcapacity, staff resources, PPE. But now that we have protocols in place, I hope we retain some of that muscle memory that we've learned from it and that we continue to prioritize it. I think this prediction hope is really getting a live trial right now with the RSV COVID flu tridemic. And it might be too soon to tell if we've been able to scale the best of our lessons learned. That's fair. Finally, we have a clip about new benefits for states and Medicaid managed care. But before we run the clip, let's introduce our special guest, Jen Ryan. Jen is an executive leader with Herrera Health and a 20 plus year veteran of Medicaid policy. Jen, welcome to the Medicare Meetup. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. We're revisiting our 2022 predictions from this past January and seeing how we did. In the following clip, Breda speaks to potential for new benefits in Medicaid. On the Medicaid side, we've heard from our Medicaid colleagues at Herrera that the continued strain of COVID may inhibit states' efforts to promote health equity. But there is some hope that maybe federal funds from the American Rescue Plan Act could be helpful if they are spent not only on immediate COVID response needs, but also other barriers to health, such as homelessness, food insecurity, provider shortages, mental health care, substance use disorders, or other public health infrastructure gaps. So Jen, how did that prediction fare? What are we seeing with Medicaid and state plan benefits? Are they expanding into housing and other public health infrastructure gaps? You know, we are definitely seeing a strong trend from CMS as they're now allowing states to use that Section 1115 waiver authority to leverage Medicaid funding for services intended to address the social drivers of health. Um, 16 states have approved, have received approval for their waivers um, that are including coverage of things like housing supports, paying for security deposits and moving costs, and even up to six months of rent. Um, states are also receiving Medicaid funding to provide food assistance and nutrition supports and also things like medically tailored meals. And they're offering transportation supports outside of the emergency setting. Massachusetts is offering health equity-related incentive payments for providers to help them be accountable for assuring access to care across the Medicaid population. So it's a really exciting set of trends. 
It's interesting that you mentioned medically tailored meals. You know, one of our clients uses medically tailored meals in their chronic disease management coordination. And the patient stories are so impactful, you know, stories of lifelong diabetics who for the first time at a Medicare age are understanding what it means to eat and feel fully satisfied by a meal that is specifically tailored to your nutritional needs and also experiencing the effects of that on on their diabetes, on, on their insulin. And, and, um, it's just really a a great, a great program. That is wonderful when the right care the right service is matched with a person in need. But I think there may also be a question here around whether this is the role of Medicaid. Is this how we want to fund housing, um, or food? Is this the most efficient way? What do managed care plans know about housing? Are states or CMCS wrestling with that at all, Jen? You know, you raise a really great point. And I think um, the recognition uh, that's happening is that the safety net, which is supposed to be supporting people um, through housing supports and through the food stamps program and um, through some of the other, you know, historically uh, kind of welfare focused programs are not doing a good enough job. And um, I think CMS would be really careful to say that Medicaid is not paying for housing. That is not the role of Medicaid. But they have found a way to make the legal argument that providing safe and secure housing and helping people um, have the tools they need to stay housed, to you know pay their rent on time and to keep keep um, be good tenants, um, does ultimately promote positive health outcomes. They're they're more likely to be healthy and be able to manage chronic conditions when they have a roof over their heads. It certainly helps me. Um, Jen, much has also been made about moves towards continuous enrollment. Can you share more with our audience about the push for continuous enrollment in Medicaid and, and what the benefits of that are? For those of you who are not familiar with how Medicaid works, um, it is a means-tested program, meaning that you have to be eligible for coverage through Medicaid based on your income and a, a variety of other circumstances. And so folks have to apply to enroll in Medicaid coverage in a way that's certainly different from Medicare, which is obviously much more automatic. And so the the need to uh, apply for Medicaid and and be determined eligible and then reapply every period of time to continue to have your coverage has been a really big source of challenges for this population because uh, when you are disenrolled from Medicaid, you obviously also lose access to your healthcare services that you need to receive. And so um, these disruptions in coverage can really have impacts on people's health um, and their ability to continue to, to see their, um, their chosen doctor and, and their specialist and all the other things things that they may need to, to maintain their, uh, their care planning. And so um, it's, it's been a hot topic for a long time. Legislation has been pending for a number of years to um, change those rules to allow for people to be enrolled in Medicaid for a whole year without having to reapply or determine or document their income more than once a year. Uh, the, the law hasn't quite caught up yet, but CMS um, has taken some some steps to make this more uh, more possible for folks, um, and, and you know it's really based on the argument that the Medicaid eligible eligible population does not have huge swings in their income from month to month. Um, they're low income people. They're not they're not people who are one month um, you know receiving a big commission from a big sale and then the next month having a lower uh, a lower income. They're the population much less likely to have those types of of big swings that would mean they're not in need of Medicaid coverage any any longer. So redetermining eligibility more than once a year is just really not necessary. 
Um, a couple of states are experimenting right now with offering up to two years of continuous enrollment, particularly for children, um, and CMS has been supportive. And then there's another really encouraging development um, more, more recently and, and encouraged through um, the through ARPA um, that CMS is encouraging states to adopt that 12 months of continuous eligibility for pregnant women and new moms um, who have... Um, who are enrolled in, in Medicaid during their pregnancy uh, and previous rules required that eligibility for Medicaid to end after only 60 days after giving birth. And um, for a lot of reasons, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so um, CMS and now 37 states have taken up this opportunity to um, adopt 12 months eligibility for, for new moms. Um, and, and it seems to be a trend that's happening regardless of whether the state is led by a Democrat or Republican governor and legislature. So it's it's a really encouraging new trend that's um, that's started this past year. Yeah, this just makes a ton of sense. And I I think about, you know, obviously we, we wear Medicare hats um, day in and day out on our team. Um, and we talk about churn, you know, people running from one Medicare Advantage program to another and potentially the rewards or risks that providers are put at by different Medicare Advantage payers, but we don't talk about people falling on and off of Medicare coverage. And, and that's, um, you know, part of the, the, the charm and what works about the program is that you, you get to that age and, and you're covered at some level, um, you know, no matter who you see and where you go. So uh, that's really an interesting development in Medicaid and, and a good trend to see. And speaking of children, you have been central to Arrera Health's efforts to raise awareness for adverse childhood experiences and trauma-informed care. And I'm wondering if you want to share more about Arrera's collaborative initiative, Pathways to Resilience. Sure. Thanks for asking. Um, so the idea for Pathways to Resilience grew out of our work over the past three years on California's ACEs Aware initiative. Um, we at Aurora Health, uh, a large team of us, were privileged to be able to lead that initiative on behalf of the state of California. And we were often asked to talk with other states that were interested in learning about ACEs Aware and understanding how they might replicate pieces of the initiative in their communities. Um, and ACEs Aware was an, is an initiative that is focused on educating healthcare providers, behavioral health providers, and others um, about adverse childhood experiences uh, and, and the, the impact that those adverse childhood experiences can have on, on folks' long-term health. Um, for those of you who don't know, adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, are um, events that happen in one's life uh, before you turn 18, things like abuse, neglect, um, but also divorce, death of a close family member, addiction, or incarceration within your family. Um, these, these ACEs are considered um, to be um, these, these life events and the toxic stress that they can generate are known now through the research to have direct impact on folks' long-term health. Um, people with four or more ACEs are significantly more likely to develop conditions like diabetes and heart disease and cancers later in life, um, especially when those ACEs are not recognized and addressed. And so we realized as we were doing our ACEs Aware work that there wasn't really an organizational home for talking about some of these strategies and some of the policies and programs that could be designed um, to, to really um, address the effects of ACEs and trauma um, on, on really all of us, right? I think we all learned through the pandemic in recent years that toxic stress is a very real everyday occurrence for, for, for many people, and, um, and there are real health effects um, that, that result from that 
that prolonged um, exposure to stress. And so we decided that creating that organizational home was something that we should do and could do at Herrera. Um, and so we, we launched the initiative in May, and we've really been kind of going gangbusters ever since. Uh, we host monthly learning network sessions that are meant to highlight strategies for addressing ACEs and toxic stress, um, really calling on the experts in the field from across the country um, to talk together about, about these practical, concrete strategies. Um, in September, we brought together leaders from state, from 20 states um, for a day-long session in Denver that was, um, again, focused on identifying some of those common and practical strategies and sharing, sharing ideas, sharing experiences across states. Um, one of my favorite um, strategies that we've learned about through, this, through these conversations is an effort that was spearheaded by um, Lauren Baker, who's the First Lady of Massachusetts. And she, in her um, long-standing career interest in child welfare, um, had had been doing some volunteering with uh, the foster care system, and she had had the opportunity to visit some uh, family vi- visitation rooms where um, where foster children and their birth parents um, sort of were designated to have their regular um, their regular times together, and and she found that those rooms were just awful and cold and um, unwelcoming and awkward for the social worker who had to um, sit and observe the visit. Uh, there was just sort of no feeling of privacy or um, you know, comfort for the children and, and for the, the birth parent. And so she, she raised some funding and actually hired a trauma-informed architect to redesign all of the family visitation rooms, um, I think all of the rooms across Massachusetts. Maybe she hasn't quite reached every single one yet, but um, they're close. And, you know, doing something so simple like changing the paint cover- color of the room, um, adding a fuzzy soft rug on the floor, <laughs> replacing conference tables and folding chairs with kid-sized furniture and art supplies has absolutely transformed what otherwise can be such a stressful situation and, and visitation experience into something much less intimid- intimidating. And so the result of this kind of small change has really helped um, avoid re-traumatizing the children, right? That's the stress that they might feel from getting back together with a parent that's obviously been in a difficult situation. And it's even made the social worker's job less stressful, which, as we know, burnout among um, sort of frontline workers across the board is is so, so high right now. And um, this, again, small change really has made a difference. This is such inspiring work to watch develop. And um, we're in awe of you and the team that have worked on it. What can people expect from Pathways to Resilience in 2023? And where can they go to learn more information? Yes. Well, we have a beautiful website created by our wonderful communications team. Um, It's really chock full of great information. So I certainly would encourage folks to check out the website at www.pathways-us.org. Um, we also have some exciting programming planned for 23, maybe even including a conference. Uh, we're really hoping that the rubber is going to meet the road in working with the states directly on implementing some of these pre- practical strategies for addressing trauma. It's really going to be an exciting year. That's great to hear. Well, it wouldn't be a year-end episode if we didn't place fresh bets on the new year. How about one each? I can go first. I'm placing a safe bet this year that we will see more from CMS about primary care payment reform. Safe because they issued an RFI on it, which is usually a pretty good indication that they plan to do something. Um, But also because the industry responded with a pretty clear, um, consistent call. And that is that it's not 
risk and like downside risk in a payment model that primary care needs most. It is a stable, predictable payment that comes and covers the things you want us to do. So, you know, whether you were hearing from trade associations or, um, uh, integrated delivery systems or um, advocates on behalf of specific primary care doctors. You just, you heard this same call again and again, we are workforce burnt out. You are putting more and more and more onto the backs of the primary care office visit, um, whether it's in-person or virtual. And that's great. It's all stuff that we think we should be doing like screening for um, health related social needs, but uh, we, we need the time to do it. We need the space to do it. And unpredictable payment at a primary care level is maybe not the thing that's most supportive to us. So between the RFI in June and the commotion or um, lack thereof in response to some recent models like commotion with, with global and professional direct contracting and reach where you saw a ton of consolidation and private equity interest. Um, you can love that or hate that, but it happened. Um, and uh, it's just been very, very active. And then, you know, sort of maybe like a lack of commotion um, or interest in primary care first, which has been a sleepier multi-payer model focused on primary care with a capitation feature. I just, I think the agency is in a good position to offer something new, and I would expect to see that in 2023. Jen, how about you? Um, what's your safe bet or bold hope for the new year? So I think the word of 2023 is going to be access. Having health insurance through Medicare and Medicaid is really meaningless if you cannot access the services you need in a timely manner. CMS has given several public signals that they are taking steps to require states to support more consistent access to high-quality services and coverage through things like increasing provider payment rates to generate um, more participation, particularly among specialties, streamlining rules around access to mental health and behavioral health services so that uh, folks don't need prior authorization to receive a counseling visit or they don't need a mental health diagnosis before they can access some of those uh, those therapy supports. And then really trying to think long-term about the efficacy of telehealth, right? We learned so much about the importance of telehealth during the pandemic. And um, it's, I think many many folks are hoping that the telehealth will become a more permanent fixture in, in both Medicare and Medicaid, I think. Um, another interesting trend um, kind of relate, related to access is the expanding number of states that are um, focusing on the justice-involved population and um, individuals who are particularly in jails um, before they are released from jail. Uh, there are a number of states that are now providing the opportunity for folks to enroll in Medicaid coverage while they're still incarcerated, which was previously prohibited. And the idea behind this, again, is to just really create a seamless transition for, for individuals. Um, they, they were, you know, likely able to, if they were a diabetic and they were incarcerated, they were able to get consistent access to their, their insulin and, and um, the, you know, sort of supports needed around uh, managing chronic conditions. But when you're released and you don't have health insurance and you don't have um, quick access to a prescription or to uh, any kind of mental health services or even substance use treatment, uh, the, you know, the, the recidivism rates go up exponentially. And so um, based on that realization, states are starting to really take steps to facilitate people being enrolled in Medicaid so that when they 
they uh, are released, they can immediately go to the to the pharmacy and get that prescription filled uh, because they'll have their their Medicaid card in hand. So that's I think another really interesting trend. And then finally, CMS I think is signaling their commitment, um, really in service of the broader movement around health equity, um, to elevating the voice of people with lived experience, um, people with lived experience in Medicaid, um, and just as caregivers and and other um, situations like perhaps um, caring for children with a disability or uh, with autism. And so um, they're they're doing taking some steps around that to kind of encourage. Uh, that elevated voice in their in states policy making, and so I think 2023 is going to be a really interesting and exciting year around that as well. I'm excited about all of those, but uh, particularly picking up on that last one. I mean, I think one of our predictions in 2022 was that we would see potentially, um, and maybe this was a, more of a bold hope than a prediction, but. Um, a move to involve more of the patients and the community that is served by Medicare in some of the design of models and CMMI. And if if this is taking root in Medicaid and it works and there are some really successful strategies, I would love to see more of that, you know, across the entire portfolio of programs that are designed to improve quality and reduce cost and improve patient experience because we are still missing so much of that voice. So that's that's really exciting and a, a good bold hope and uh, a trend to watch for in 2023. Finally, Melissa, how about you? Any safe bets or bold hopes? Well, Jen was really showing off with three bets. <laughs> three I'm and only one. Take, <laughs> I'm only taking one, uh, and this is a safe one. Um, I agree, Meg, that something has to come from all of these RFIs, but I am also looking at the November open letter from a bipartisan group of six senators, Cassidy, Scott, Carper, Cornyn, Menendez, and Warner. I think I got them all looking for recommendations and policy fixes for the current system of care for dual eligibles, seniors or those with disabilities who have both Medicare and Medicaid insurance. The current system does not work well. It's disjointed, confusing, and expensive with poor customer experience. One payer is confusing enough, let alone two. So in the open letter, the senators noted that duals were three times more likely to be hospitalized from COVID than Medicare-only patients, which is not totally surprising considering that this population typically suffers from multiple chronic conditions. Duals are also 34% of the Medicare spend, while only 20% of the enrollees. Uh, The open letter asks for models that have shown some degree of success. And a lot of states are currently innovating in this space. CalAIM is California's attempt to streamline care for this population and pay for enhanced coordination service. CalAIM is California's attempt to streamline care for this population and pay for enhanced coordination services. And you are seeing a proliferation of DSNPs or dual eligible special needs plans in a lot of regions and new entrant provider types that are specifically targeting this population. Because of the high cost of duals, along with this administration's focus on alleviating health disparities, my bet is that this will be an area where we will see a lot of activity. Not sure if it's a new model out of the duals office or CMMI or some regulations out of CMS, but I definitely see something happening here. Well, thanks to everyone for the predictions. Uh, This reminds me of a quote that I didn't think about before the podcast, so I didn't look up who to attribute it to. But the fact, uh, the quote goes something like, we tend to 
overestimate the change that'll happen in a year and underestimate the change that will happen in five. And so it'll be interesting to see which of our safe bets pays off, which trends gain the momentum we're hoping they do, and only time will tell. We want to thank our special guest, Jen Ryan, for her participation today. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in with us. We uh, look forward to talking to you all in the new year. Um, One quick shout out. If you have questions for us, we're going to do a little listener mail in January. So you can send those questions to um, us at Medicare at ArreraHealth.com. That's Medicare at A-U-R-R-E-R-A Health.com. And uh, thank you. We wish you all a safe and happy passage into the new year.